Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Begin our the last series of uh, GI seminar for this semester. So we have uh, Stephen for our last presentation. So he's going to talk about the, the title has been changed. Uh, I just abbreviated okay. it a bit. But yeah. So the preventing the mass atrocities, understanding risk and resilience. And then the Stephen, uh, some of you know, is a research fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute and the Center for Governance and Public Policy. And then uh, his research interests are um, the mass atrocities, early warning, and then uh, structural prevention of the mass atrocities and ethnic conflicts in the post-conflict uh, countries. And then he has a paper at the uh, with the Journal of Genocide Research. And then he also has the book. Uh, coming out uh, with exactly the same title of the, today's presentation uh, soon. So, Stephen. Oh, thank you. Um, actually, it's an abbreviated title. It's, um, the, the longer title is The Structural Prevention of Mass Atrocities, and I'll go into the, the, what that actually means in the presentation. And this is based on a book that's coming out at the end of the year, the sort of conceptual argument that I have in the book, which is also based on my PhD thesis. So, okay, I'll get going. So over the last decade, uh, there's been a growing interest amongst both scholars and policymakers on the prevention of genocide and mass atrocities. Uh, in 2004, the United Nations set up the first office devoted entirely to the prevention of genocide since the Genocide Convention came out in 1948. Uh, it's called the Office of the Special Advisor for the Prevention of Genocide. The Department of Political Affairs, which is designated as the focal point for prevention throughout the UN system, received substantially greater funds to, uh, to carry out prevention a few years ago. In 2005, there was consensus on the idea of the responsibility to protect at the World Summit, and which had a strong sort of preventive theme to it. And last year, the White House uh, established what it calls the Atrocities Prevention Board. So there's, there's growing interest in this idea of preventing genocide and mass atrocities. But despite this growing commitment, uh, I think that researchers and policymakers have largely overlooked problems that are inherent in the commonly accepted notion of prevention. Um, this, this concept of prevention was crystallised I think in 1997 in the Carnegie Commission's report called Preventing Deadly Conflict. And since then, prevention has typically been understood in two parts. One that, that addresses impending cases of violence, which is called direct or operational prevention, and the other focusing on the long-term causes of violence, which is called structural prevention, which I'll focus mainly on today. Uh, the concept of structural prevention in particular is problematic, Using prevention as a public prevention in public health as a model, uh, the Carnegie Commission's report defines it as the identification and addressing of root causes. This conceptualization, I think, contains at least two limitations. Uh, first, there's an implicit assumption that root causes or the existence of root causes leads inevitably to violent outcomes. And second, within this concept, there's been a tendency for international actors to decide what counts as root causes and how to ameliorate them. This overlooks prevent the preventive work of local and national actors and um, so in this presentation I'm going to argue that what is needed 
is the broadening of the concept of structural prevention. A broader concept could incorporate not only an account of root causes, but also an understanding of the dynamic relationship between, or the interaction between the risk that root causes pose and locally based mitigation factors that foster resilience to such risk. Effective long-term prevention should be based not on identifying and ameliorating negative characteristics in countries at risk, but also on contributing to the complex management of diversity. Uh, while this makes intuitive sense, uh, such an approach so far hasn't really been refle reflected in the conceptual understandings of prevention adopted by the United Nations and, and uh, discussed in the academic literature. So in this presentation, I'm going to break it up into three parts. The first is uh, I'll provide an overview of the, the concept of structural prevention and how it has evolved over the last 20 years. The second, I'll discuss two limitations in the concept that I've already uh, identified. The assumption that root causes means that violent outcomes are inevitable and also the, the tendency towards external diagnosis and prognosis. And thirdly, I'll, I'll briefly introduce a framework that I think sort of overcomes these problems, broadens the concept of structural prevention by including an understanding not only of risk but also of how sources of resilience mitigate such risk. So, the concept of structural prevention itself, I'll start off by talking about how it, um, how it developed within the UN. The concept of long-term prevention or structural prevention started to take shape following the end of the Cold War. Initially, I think it was the OSCE that uh, was the first organisation to broaden the focus of prevention beyond preventive diplomacy and early warning uh, to incorporate longer-term strategies that address the root causes of potential conflict. The UN also began to embrace this approach, and you can see this in an agenda for, pe an agenda for peace, by, uh, uh, which was written by Boutros Ghali, who declared that the importance of addressing the underlying causes of conflict in addition to preventive diplomacy, was an important step forward, and it was um, it was, a, was issued as a challenge to policymakers to broaden the lens of uh, prevention within the UN system. Now, in 1997, and this wasn't part of this wasn't commissioned by the UN itself, but the Carnegie Commission's report, and you can see here, it's titled "Preventing Deadly Conflict," took this a little bit further and established a two-pronged definition of prevention. Uh, direct or operational prevention was defined as uh, addressing escalating tensions when conflict or, or deadly violence appeared imminent, and structural prevention, which was framed as strategies to address the root causes of deadly conflict. The authors of the report likened conflict prevention to primary prevention in public health. In other words, addressing symptoms of ill health before they manifest into disease, and they used that as an analogy for prevention in terms of conflict and, and subsequently mass atrocities. This two-part definition subsequently underpinned the approach to prevention that was adopted by the UN. Kofi Annan began to call for the UN system to adopt what he called a culture of prevention, and he released three reports in 2001, 2003 and 2006 on conflict prevention and they all embraced notions of direct and structural prevention and they all reinforced the idea that structural prevention entailed identifying and addressing root causes. 
<coughs> Ban Ki-moon backed this up in 2008 on a, in a report on conflict prevention that he released. He declared that neglecting to address the root causes of conflict would warrant negative outcomes, and I quote, if we do not deal with the root causes of conflict and offer sustainable solutions, we will be left without humanitari- with humanitarian emergencies and peacekeeping operations without end, unquote. So one of what unfolded in these reports was an intimate connection between root causes and violent outcomes and an obligation for international actors to deal with them. Uh, this idea of structural prevention is also apparent, I think, in specific relations to, in relation to mass atrocities. In its 2001 report, The Responsibility to Protect, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty emphasised this, rep- this approach, and I quote encouraging more serious and sustained efforts to address the root causes of the problems that put populations at risk is a key objective of the Commission's efforts, unquote. I think both types of prevention were also evident in the endorsement of R2P, or the Responsibility to Protect, at the 2005 World Summit. Here, Member States acknowledged the role that prevention played in ensuring the protection of populations from the crimes of genocide, mass atrocities, uh, sorry, genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. Following the, uh, the World Summit, Ban Ki-moon unpacked this declaration of R2P and established three pillars. Pillar number one being the state's own responsibility to protect their, their populations from these four crimes. Pillar two, international assistance where needed to help in the protection of populations. And pillar three, where states manifestly fail in protecting these populations, then um, Chapter 7 considerations on a case-by-case basis are then, um, <clears throat> then realised. So in, um, in this report, Ban Ki-moon emphasised the need to address the, quote, underlying fissures in the social, political, in the social and political fabric, particularly in states and regions where ethnic tensions run high and, and deep inequalities among groups persist, unquote. And also the Office of the Special Advisor for the Prevention of Genocide has used the same definition of structural prevention in relation to its long-term strategies. And on the, on the bottom left you can see a picture of the current Special Advisor, Adama Dieng, and, and he's said, and I quote, to prevent genocide and genocidal conflicts it is critically important to understand their root causes, which revolve around inequalities between identity groups, unquote. So, this uh, notion of long-term prevention, I think, has also resonated widely in the academic literature. Following the Carnegie Commission's 1997 report, a number of publications have used this distinction to formulate long-term and proximate approaches to potential conflict and atrocities based on an understanding of root causes and escalating factors and corresponding options for ameliorating them. In broad terms, key publications exploring prevention explored, uh, followed similar lines of investigation, uh, an exploration of the concept of prevention, a discussion of the causes of conflict or mass atrocities, a presentation of key preventive strategies to address these causes, and finally, an exploration of key preventive actors with the capacity to adopt such strategies. In relation specifically to the crime of genocide, David Hamburg, who was also one of the architects of the Carnegie Commission's report, published a book 
three years, four years ago now, called Preventing Genocide, as you can see. And again, he uses the public health analogy to illustrate the root cause approach. Uh, prevention, he argues, and I quote, involves identifying an ailing nation's specific problems and employing evidence-based responses towards resolving them. Some measures such as early, skillful and respectful preventive diplomacy can quickly show beneficial results, just as expert care of a sprained ankle results in rapid healing and prevents an injury from getting worse. Longer-term measures, especially helping a troubled nation build a democratic, equitable socio-economic infrastructure, take longer to apply and even longer to show results, but the effects are likely to be lasting and pervasive, just as promoting a healthy lifestyle and environment can achieve a much better health for a society that is accustomed to health-damaging habits such as cigarette smoking, unquote. I think what this quote illustrates is that structural prevention not only entails identifying and addressing the root causes of genocide, but that the responsibility for identifying such problems, as well as prescribing actions to remedy them, lies with actors external to the places of concern. Much like the relationship between a doctor and a patient, conceptual approaches to both forms of prevention here demonstrate distinctions between preventive actors and prevention recipients. So in the conceptual explorations of the structural prevention of both conflict and mass atrocities, I think there are two common features. One is that structural prevention is premised on the identification and removal of root causes, and two, the responsibility for identifying such problems as well as prescribing action to remedy them lies with uh, actors external to the places of concern. I think uh, by framing structural prevention in this way, there are two major limitations that both researchers and policymakers face. The first one is that this idea of prevention assumes that the existence of root causes will necessarily result in a violent outcome if not dealt with, suggesting a linear connection between cause and outcome. The second one is this public health model approach to long-term prevention has encouraged a tendency towards external diagnosis and prognosis. Uh, this overlooks a consideration of the role that local, local and national actors play in the prevention of mass, of mass atrocities or, or such violence. So I'll go through these two limitations in a little more detail. So the first one, premising prevention on the identification and removal of root causes assumes a linear relationship between cause and violent outcome. It assumes that such violence will inevitably occur if root causes are not dealt with. It also suggests that the mere existence of conditions that amount to root causes necessitates their removals and that doing so will result in the prevention of mass atrocities. In the academic literature, often this linear relationship between cause and violent outcome is suggested by positioning root causes as the first of a number of stages or phases of eventually culminating in violence. Uh, the stages typically progress from pre-violence or potential violence, which represents the existence of root causes, then usually passes through periods of gestation or escalation and then resulting eventually in violence. Framing structural prevention within a conflict continuum or a tem temporal continuum, to borrow words from the academic literature, invites a certain policy logic that not only is it better to tackle these problems earlier rather than later, but not tackling such problems at an early stage 
will inevitably result in the need to deal with more complex challenges later on. Once such root causes are known to exist, there is a need to act, lest these causes be allowed to progress from the stage of pre-violence to one of gestation and escalation and, and violence itself. This approach, I think, is problematic. Even in public health, there are those that question this approach, claiming that the tend this tendency can often lead to overdiagnosis, and I think that the um, uh, tendency for the pharmaceutical industry to actually cause diseases and conditions and then, and, and then create remedies to those conditions are an example of, of this tendency of overdiagnosis. Similarly, I think there is um, a risk that approaches to conflict and mass atrocities prevention may conclude wrongly that violent outcomes are inevitable without action. Indeed, it's contrary to the claims of the scholars of genocide and other mass atrocities. Here, within genocide studies, there's a general consensus of the argument that long-term structural preconditions or root causes of such violence have at best a tenuous causal link with mass violence. While they create the conditions that are conducive to atrocities, these preconditions are not sufficient in and of themselves to directly cause such episodes of, of violence, of mass violence, or genocide-like violence. And this is a common finding amongst virtually all genocide scholars. In fact, you could argue that, or as many do, that the perpetration of genocide and other mass atrocities are quite rare, the exception rather than the norm. Uh, three genocide scholars, Bartoli, Ogata and Stanton, for example, state, and I quote, most states do not commit, commit genocide most of the time. State interest normally does not coincide with genocidal intent, and the predisposition of governments is generally non-genocidal, unquote. According to Genocide Watch's survey of countries that experienced significant risk or even moderate risk of genocidal violence between 1945 and 2008, for every country that received that, that reached the stage seven, and if you're familiar with Gregory Stanton's eight stages of genocide, stage seven is the is the stage where genocidal or non-genocidal massacres occurred. For every country that reached stage seven, there were two that did not. Uh, to, su to suggest then that it is necessary to, to ameliorate such root causes once they've been identified indeed runs counter to what is known about the long-term causes of mass atrocities. If, as the scholarship on genocide studies suggests, that the existence of root causes does not indicate an inevitable violent outcome, what other outcomes are common? In countries that contain these root causes, the local and uh, national dynamics and processes that steer, the, steer them away from violent outcomes, I think, are clearly worthy of investigation and are potentially a valuable insight into national sources of resilience which deter violent outcomes. In fact, such positive dynamics are also largely overlooked in comparative genocide studies, despite the consensus on the fact that long-term risk prevalence is not sufficient for the perpetration of genocide and other mass atrocities, very little research is conducted into the reasons why many states that contain these root causes have not uh, resulted in violent outcomes. Such scholarship itself has a tendency to focus on what goes wrong. Methodologically, the approach amongst most comparative genocide scholars is to select a number of cases of past genocides and then to examine their contributing factors. Those factors that are common across all of these cases then form the theoretical basis found 
in these sources. While such research has yielded valuable knowledge on the antecedents of past genocides, very little knowledge has been gained on what factors deter the outcome of violence where there is risk. Such knowledge is clearly valuable, I think, for the long-term prevention of genocide and other mass atrocities. Now, the second limitation is the, uh, the tendency to overemphasise the, the role of international actors. Uh, the oversight of understanding positive processes that I, I've just talked about, that build resilience, is also apparent in how research and preventive strategies have been shepherded principally by international actors. There's a tendency which, to use the parlance of public health, this is a tendency which is characterised by external diagnosis and prognosis. Uh, research and policy making on conflict and atrocities prevention is almost entirely focused on the role of international actors. Indeed, some definitions of structural prevention explicitly exclude local and national actors in places of concern. Peter Wallenstein, for example, uh, defines it as, I quote, a reform program for states and societies at high risk of violence, unquote. Other sources in discussing prevention actors typically identify the United Nations, regional organisations, international NGOs and Western donor countries as the key players. As a consequence of this, overlooking domestic examples of success in the effective management of, of risk and diversity accentuates the culture of external diagnosis and troubleshooting. And I think it gives preventive action a paternal character, particularly when it's rare for such research to consider what is already happening in such places to prevent conflict and mass atrocities. Even when the parlance of prevention shifts to incorporate greater state responsibility, there remains much ambiguity in how it is actually carried out. State responsibility is repeatedly stressed in numerous UN reports on prevention, in the ones that, that were commissioned by Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon, for instance. But there's almost no guidance in the literature on prevention on how to observe successful cases of responsibility being carried out. Much is known about the absence of responsibility, but little about its presence. The same pattern is, evidence, is evident, I think, in the emergence of the principle of R2P. The three-pillar strategy of the principle that, uh, that uh, was articulated in Ban Ki-moon's 2009 report clearly identified state responsibility, as the principle itself does, as having primary importance when it comes to prevention. This, this was an endorsement of a principle for the prevention of mass atrocities that does not assume third-party diagnosis and prognosis as the starting point. But there is little research that investigates what states do to effectively carry out this responsibility and little, little attention paid to the limited research that already exists, despite Ban Ki-moon's call for such an approach. And in this report he states, and I quote, more research and analysis is needed on why one society plunges into mass violence while his neighbours remain relatively stable, unquote. So, to redress these limitations, um, what I propose and what, what I'm um, engaged in doing is, is exploring a new framework for research into the causes and structural prevention of genocide and mass atrocities. And you'll have to, ex you'll have to uh, excuse my, my very limited PowerPoint graphic skills, but the purpose of this diagram is just to illustrate, um, I suppose, how the, 
how the process of understanding prevention goes beyond just a, a simple identification of, of root causes to one that it looks at a more complex and dynamic process of risk and, um, and what mitigates risk. So just to explain it you know, briefly, you can see that uh, one component is the identification of root causes or long-term preconditions, and I prefer to re refer to it these, um, these factors as preconditions because um, I think that, that sums up in a causal sense more accurately what these factors um, represent. And, and that is that um, according to most genocide research, these are factors that, that tend to pop up in the months and years prior to an outbreak of, of mass violence. But what the causal link itself is, is, is far more ambiguous. So I think precondition is a much more accurate word. But I refer to root causes as well because that's often the word that is used in uh, prevention literature. Alongside this is a component, I think, of equal credence, which I've talked about, in which there's a corresponding identification of factors that mitigate against this risk posed by the presence of preconditions. The purpose of this is to create a, an analytical model that provides a lens not only on root causes, but the dynamics and processes within states and communities that already have some measure of success in mitigating the risk inherent in the presence of such root causes. An approach to prevention that incorporates resilience starts with the idea that states that display a long-term risk of mass atrocities also contain uh, local and national actors that have, to some extent, the capacity to uh, develop strategies to manage that risk at varying levels of success. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll show you what this framework looks like after it's... it's um, it, this is, a, I suppose, in a very simple sense, a synthesis of the, the research that, on the one hand, has um, been developed around what the main preconditions of genocide and mass atrocities are, and the pool of research that, that I've drawn on for that information, which represents the, uh, the left-hand column, is, is quite large. Uh, there's been a lot of research, particularly in comparative genocide studies, especially over the last 30 or 40 years, to, to get a, a good sense of um, what those structural factors are that exist in countries prior to an outbreak of mass violence. The other column represents a synthesis of a much smaller pool of research. It's, it's very limited, but uh, what I've done is, is created a synthesis of the research that exists into what the sources of resilience are, or what, the, uh, what the causes of stability uh, in countries are, particularly in places where there is some indication of risk. Um, because the framework itself is kind of lopsided in terms of the research that it, um, that it uses to create these factors, it definitely has its limitations. Inevitably, there are going to be gaps in our knowledge particularly in terms of what causes resilience. But I think the framework itself and um, the dynamics that it, that it um, sheds light on, I think, is, is um, I think it's sufficient enough to give us a sense of some of these dynamics in play and how, they, how, they, how the, the ideas of risk and resilience or risk and mit risk mitigation play out. In this sense, I think the framework itself is best utilised as a guide rather than, rather than a re restrictive lens, and it is in no way exhaustive in terms of the factors that represent both risk and resilience. But at the same time, I think 
the broadness of these categories allows for the examination of a diverse range of dynamics and processes that build stability and resilience over time. And currently, I think there are three broad areas where such an analytical model could be useful. One is understanding how countries that display a moderate risk of mass atrocities manage or diminish risk over the long term. Also, it could be used in understanding how countries that display a very high or extreme risk manage to avoid atrocities over a period of time as well. And some of the work that I've done on my, in my PhD as well as that which will be coming out in this book has gone into understanding how these processes play out in, country, in countries that display a moderate risk of mass atrocities. And three countries that I focused on were Botswana, Zambia and uh, Tanzania, all in southern Africa. The second area, I think, could be in terms of how it would broaden the approach of comparative genocide study. And as I've said, currently, comparative genocide study is based principally on comparing past cases of genocide. Very few publications in comparative genocide studies incorporate uh, the question of why genocide doesn't exist. There are a couple of notable exceptions. One is in Manus Midlarsky's book, The Killing Trap, where he uses, um, he uses briefly cases where genocide didn't occur during the Holocaust and also why genocide wasn't committed against the, the Greek minority in Anatolia in World War I. But these were, these, these were mentioned uh, briefly and they, were, they didn't actually um, comprise the the, uh, the main part of his, um, of his comparative research. But it's a notable exception, and, and he has some very interesting things to say. Another book, another interesting book, comparative genocide research, is one called Why Not Kill Them All by Chiro Macaulay, and in that they have a more uh, detailed explanation, an exploration of a number of the policies that governments use to manage diversity, manage ethnic and religious diversity in countries like uh, India, Canada, Switzerland, and other places. But um, and and I think that's probably the best uh, instance of a publication that that deals with not only why such things occur, but why uh, what sort of policies are actually effective in, in managing risk to varying levels of success over time. So and uh, another example is a, an article that I, I published with a colleague of mine, Deborah Mayerson, in the Journal of Genocide Research a couple of years ago comparing a positive and a negative case. So in terms of... Uh, Deborah Mayerson is an expert in Rwanda, so we compared Rwanda and Botswana as a case where genocide was clearly apparent and Botswana as a case of successful risk mitigation over time. The third case... The third area where I think it could make a contribution is uh, in the research on prevention by putting a greater focus on local and national protective factors against such violence. In terms of R2P, I think this deepens an understanding of Pillar 1 prevention, which Ban Ki-moon has called for. I think it also speaks to Pillar 2 uh, in terms of um, international assistance where needed to, to help states protect their populations against the four mass atrocity crimes. Where, international, such, where such international assistance is needed, I think it provides opportunities for a more facilitative approach and a greater awareness of processes that already exist in countries, rather than creating prescriptive approaches where, where uh, strategies and solutions are determined from outside. So, to conclude, the presentation, I think, challenges 
the, uh, the commonly held notion of structural prevention, both in um, the United Nations reports and in the, the literature in general, in, and it, and it uh, highlights two limitations that I've pointed out. One, linear connection between cause and outcome, which is problematic, and two, the idea that pre prevention is premised on the role of international actors, both in determining what the problems are and determining the solutions and who, who shall instigate those solutions. Uh, and this is to the exclusion, to some extent, of local and national actors. Researchers, research into the causes of genocide and other mass atrocities don't support the idea of linear inevitability. Root causes are necessary but not sufficient factors in the perpetration of such violence. Despite this, this is very, there's very little interest in the research in comparative genocide studies on why such violence doesn't occur. So, as I've said, what I argue is that prevention needs to broaden its focus. We need to gain a better understanding of why such mass violence doesn't occur and uh, understanding why it doesn't occur and understanding what local and national s sources of resilience and stability are that mitigate against the risk of such root causes can give us, um, I think, really valuable insights into ways that the risk of mass atrocities is already being managed by local and national actors. I think I might leave it there. Alright, so uh, questions? Comments? Jason? Uh, thanks. I was just going <coughs> to say that in, in some ways the, the policy literature and the scholarly literature that you're talking about seems to be incredibly sort of ignorant. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.